Today, friends, I want to introduce you to an important campaign to defend Ka Louie. And we'll be doing so by having a conversation with Ka Luis Holandoni and Connie Ledesma. Ka Louie is the chief international representative of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines and senior advisor to the National Democratic Front of the Philippines negotiating panel for their peace talks. Connie Ledesma is a member of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines negotiating panel and a Makabaka international representative. Um, Evie is part of the global secretariat of the Friends of the Filipino People in Struggle. And then finally, Dana is a founder of the People Organizing for Philippine Solidarity, which is located in Portland, Oregon. All right, so we're going to dive into all these acronyms, all these different uh, organizational names. So if you feel a little overwhelmed with all the names, don't worry. Uh, we have a whole hour to walk through them. But I also wanted to mention that we will be discussing uh, the Christians for National Liberation. And the CNL we've talked about before on this podcast, but we, we do have the pleasure of having um, some founders of the Christians for National Liberation in this conversation with us today. So yes, this is a very important conversation to be had, and particularly the campaign to defend Kaului against the accusations of terrorism uh, and being a terrorist and supporting terrorism is just as urgent um, because these freedom fighters have, have given their lives in the struggle for socialism, in the struggles against bureaucrat capitalism and feudalism in the Philippines, and against U.S. imperialism as well. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get into this really exciting, wonderful conversation. Oh, actually, one last thing. We also talk about the New People's Army, the NPA. So if you're unfamiliar with the New People's Army of the Philippines, then you will also learn about that as well. Okay, that's enough of an introduction. Let's get to our conversation with Louie, Connie, Evie, and Dana. So let's go ahead and start off, uh, Louie, uh, here. So could you just actually just start us off maybe from the beginning here? Discuss a little bit about your early life in the church and then also how that led to you integrating yourself, your life and your political work with workers and peasants in particular. Yes, so I was an ordained priest. You mean? I'm Louis Landoni. I was ordained priest in 1962. By 1969, the bishop of our diocese, Bishop Antonio Fortich assigned me to be the social action director of the diocese. This meant uh, 26 uh, municipalities where I would be put in charge of social action. So this was 1969, and with me were youth activists of the Kiro, and they they were church people who were also active in social action. Very soon after my appointment, the sugar workers in a parish some distance from the social action center came to our office requesting for assistance because they were being driven out of their land, the land that they had tilled for many generations. And so they asked 
for the help of the Social Action Center. At first, because this area was under the control of the, uh, the, the warlord who had his uh, armed goons. And so I said, this looks like a hot potato. And the student youth activist said, what kind of social action center is this? If it will only handle soft potatoes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the youth activist challenged me. Mm -hmm. And then the third time that the uh, sugar workers came for assistance, we met again with the youth activists and we decided that we would take their case and help them. So six of us, five youth activists and myself, I was a young priest then, and then we went to the area, which was the area of this warlord. And so we walked quite a number of kilometers and to the area, we reached this community of about 100 families of sugar workers. And they came and said they were being driven out of their land. The house of one of them was pushed by tractor all the way to the river. So they were threatened. And so we talked and they said we could try to help. And about 40 of them came and came with us and we took a bus. It was raining hard so we could pass through the black guards, the guards of the warlord and go to Bacolod, the place of the social action center. There, two lawyers of our office helped in getting their affidavits. It took some time that these affidavits would be published in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And the warlord was very angry and ordered, went to the bishop and said, come to my place, let's talk about it. I said, why do we go there? We should come here. Yeah. Anyway, the bishop said, but I had already agreed. So. Five of us went there together with the lawyer of the diocese and a youth activist. And we arrived in the place of the warlord. There were two truckloads of military men, his black shirt guards. And when we arrived in the house of the warlord, he was bringing a pistol openly and his assistant came directly at me and said, you are arousing these people without our consent. Mm. And I stood up and said, I am just standing for their rights, their right to their land. Yes. So we could not stay long because of the threat and all those truckloads of soldiers beneath. We left and then we went again to the bishop's house. There, the vice president came for a dialogue and he asked 
can we not solve this peacefully? And I said, okay, just return the land of yeah. these peasants and these sugar workers. They have the right to the land and that would solve the issue. But then, of course, the, the land grabbers refused. So there was another meeting set so that the sugar workers who had their complaints could speak. But then eight soldiers of this uh, landlord, this warlord king came in and stood around us. And the lawyer of the warlord started questioning the sugar workers and threatening them. So they could not answer right away. And then they claimed that it was me who was pushing them in order to get publicity. So I stamped on the table and said, take that back. Then the soldiers cracked their guns mm -hmm. in threatening us. And the bishop said, Louis, Louis. And so I said to the vice president, sorry for the outburst, but what they were doing was not right. So this meant the, the conflict intensified and the media people came and then the, the workers had sent warnings that the military had gone there looking for us and the leaders of the workers. What happened soon after was two old women who offered their help to us were murdered, bloodjoined to death mm. by the goons, the goons of this warlord. So this was a very strong conflict that came up. Then came other sugar workers in different uh, places asking for our help. We went to one and there they had the goons, armed goons firing at the sugar workers and at us. Then we went to another place where there was also a strike of the sugar workers because they were not paying the just wage and they were not allowed to set up their independent union. So this became a big mobilization because this owner was a very uh, prestigious sugar central. So we had a 34 kilometer march to give support to the sugar workers. Mm. These mass struggles actually politicalized me, gave me the education I needed. Yes. And because of their tremendous courage, because of their qualities, so they politicalized me. Then also the writing of Comrade Jose Maria Sison, Philippine Society and Revolution, enlightened me. So this became my introduction, my education to more revolutionary thinking. So this was, uh, you might say, the youth workers, the sugar workers, the peasant settlers in their struggle politicalized me and gave me a very thorough education that started me on the way 
towards being a revolutionary. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that, Louis. So a few things I wanted to kind of step back and, and think about. First of all, this is all happening uh, within the context of U.S. imperialism, right? Because the, the Philippine, Philippines is a, is a semi-colony. And so it's really important for all you know, listeners to understand that this is supported by and encouraged and, and really uh, the, the conditions uh, are created by the United States um, for this kind of violence, this kind of U.S.-supported terrorism to be happening. And so, so the sugar workers are being forced off, right? Their land is being expropriated by a landlord, which is a warlord, because they have uh, people who are, who are armed. And I guarantee you those weapons were uh, produced by either the U.S. or um, by one of our allies. And they're harassing, they're, they're threatening these people to death. And they're, not only are they threatening, but they're literally murdering um, elderly women, um, and, and perhaps some of the workers who are resistant. And so the workers come to the church, uh, which that is where you are at the time. And they, uh, so they come to a, the social action center and they, they're asking for help, right? Because that's what the church should do, right? We should help the people who are being expropriated from their land, who are having a gun to their head by these, these landlords and these warmongers. Um, and it, it's the sugar workers in the community that radicalize uh, radicalizes you who is in the church and I love that and then I also think it's very you know important it's your experience in these struggles choosing to actually give your life and to the point of going to a warlord's house and having a gun waved in your face and you could have you know you could have lost your life there but you're but you've chosen uh, to to live your life and be in solidarity with the masses of people fighting against um, the injustices in these uh these direct and, and structural forms of sin. So I, I really uh, appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah, and, and again, also learning that your radicalization came from actual participation with the the sugar workers and studying communist uh, theory and analysis from Jose Maria Sassoon. So excellent, thank you for sharing that. Uh, could you share me perhaps a little bit about how how did you get from this role in the church and you're helping these sugar workers in their struggle against this landlord, this warlord, to becoming a peace negotiator in the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, right? And and perhaps also maybe help us understand a little bit about the National Democratic uh, Front of the Philippines framework for just peace, right? Uh, just peace is, uh, is the framework for addressing the roots of the armed conflict. That's right. So later in 1992, the peace talks started. That means the government of the Republic of the Philippines and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, which was established in 1973. This included mass organizations from different uh, sectors, workers, peasants, women, youth, lawyers, teachers, and so on. And this uh, broad alliance was for a revolutionary solution to the problems in the Philippines. So it pinpointed U.S. imperialism as the major factor in uh, the exploitation and oppression of the Filipino people. 
providing weapons to the military and all that. So this National Democratic Front of the Philippines requested me and others to participate in peace negotiations with the government of the Republic of the Philippines. And the first agreement that was uh, signed was called the Agreement of Parity and Non and non surrender, no surrender, no capitulation. So this was a very important agreement because it meant that neither the uh, revolutionary movement nor the government of the Republic of the Philippines would be asked to surrender to the other side. So this was a, a, a joint agreement on mm -hmm. parity. This Hague Joint Declaration was signed on September 1, 1992. This was followed by the Agreement on Safety and Immunity Guarantees. So that meant that all participants in the peace negotiations from both sides would be assured of safety and immunity. Then in 1998, there was the agreement on comprehensive agreement on respect for human rights and international humanitarian law. The agreement of both sides was that human rights, social and economic reforms that would deal with the needs of the peasants and workers, as well as political and constitutional reforms would be taken up and agreed upon before the agreement that would end the disposition of forces and the start of the armed struggle. So this was agreed in the first agreement that the agenda of the peace talks would include all of this so that there would be certainly the setting up of the needs for a just and lasting peace for the entire Filipino people. So this became the peace talks that were undertaken with a broad support of all the mass organizations that were for revolutionary change as well as international solidarity. But then these talks would be sabotaged by the U.S as well as other, uh, the military and other uh, counter-peace uh, forces in the Philippines. So this could not continue for a long time, but these peace agreements were taken up and signed and approved by the principals of both sides, but this could not pursue, go on further because of the uh, exploiters and oppressors and the U.S. especially going against such peace talks. Yeah, so one thing that stands out to me is you're talking about like national peace talks happening within and across the, the, the Philippines. But earlier in your conversation, you also talked about kind of like a, the peace talks on a micro level where you were in a situation where you were saying, hey, let's stop the violence, right? Um, the, the, the people talking to you were like, hey, let's stop the violence. And you said, sure, 
Um, well, then the land needs to go back to the sugar workers, right? To the peasants. Like that's how you stop yep. the violence. That's the peace. If you want peace, well, then that's how you do it. And then now you're talking on a national level where you are saying you want peace, right? The people want peace. You, you don't want the, the violence to, to continue. And so you're saying the U.S. has to stop the violence, right? No more U.S. imperialism. You have to, the United States can't control and maintain the Philippines as a semi-colony, right? The, it's the first act of violence that comes from the imperialist power. And then internally as well, the Filipino state has to end the political and the economic repression of the people. So it's just interesting how, whether it's the exploiters or the oppressors or the colonizers or the imperialists, you know, they always play a game. They, they talk a talk about peace and they expect the exploited, the oppressed, the uh, colonized, like we're the ones who are supposed to uh, establish some kind of peace. But what, what they mean by peace is basically bowing down to their, their rule, bowing down to their violence. And that's, that's not peace for us. That's not, that, that would be peace of the cemetery. That means uh, the revolutionary people, the people who are in struggle, have to give up. Now, that's why in the very first agreement, there is that provision that there is no surrender by either side. There is no capitulation. There is parity between the two sides. With regards to violence, we take, take it this way. They, they, they sometimes tell us, revolutionary Christians, progressive Christians, thou shalt not kill. It's the order in the Bible. And then we say, yes, it depends to whom you address thou shalt not kill. We do not address that thou shalt not kill to the new people's army, to progressive mm -hmm. forces who are defending the people. We are addressing it to the killers, to the generals, to this military who kill the people. So we say that is not addressed to the progressive forces, to the forces who are for peace and security and for change. So we say that this violence comes from the exploiters and oppressors, the imperialists, the feudalists, those who oppress and exploit the people with their military and their wounds. So we say, thou shalt not kill. We do not address it to the people's fighters and to those who defend them. And also, we don't address it to the people's organizations. Hmm. Louis, thank you so much for getting this conversation started. Connie, uh, I'd like to ask you a few questions so what, one of the things we, we've mentioned a few times here on this podcast, uh, we've talked about the organization, the Christians for National Liberation. And so could you help us learn a little bit more, uh, perhaps start us off with the founding of the Christians for National Liberation? Or maybe before starting about the founding, what led to the founding? Yes, excellent. Because as Louis started saying that um, he got involved in the struggle of the sugar workers, and it politicalized him. If you go back to the 1960s, that is when there was the Second Vatican Council, and that was sort of the uh, modernization of the church, if I can say that. And it called for the church, for church people to go out to the people rather than the people go to the church, let the church people go to the people. And so there was this uh, 
movement of re religious nuns like myself before and priests who went out among the people and began to learn what was happening to the people and in the process got politicalized. And um, we actually, Louis led this uh, sort of discussion groups in Bacolod, not only in Bacolod, it later on expanded to other Visayan uh, cities, religious, who were involved with the people who began questioning, what do we do now? Where are we going? What is the meaning of all of this? And it seemed also in Manila, religious who were getting involved in the people were also asking the same questions. And at a certain, and we would have discussions, we would have regular study sessions. You're trying to find where we were going because this was a whole new experience to us. You see, we were, how do you say, taught or we were made to believe that we would bring truth and grace to the people. And suddenly it was the people teaching us. We were learning from the people. We were getting politicalized. Our eyes were being opened. Mm. We wanted to do more for the people. So this needed discussion among those who were undergoing the same process. And at a certain point, those of us in Negros, those of us in the Visayas said, you know, let's form an organization where we can work together and move together. And in Manila, they had the same idea. They were going to form an organization also. And actually, we had a name already in Negros. And in Manila, they said, let's call ourselves Christians for National Liberation. And when we heard that in Negros, we said, that's a good name. Let's call, let's call ourselves the same name. Let's be one organization with the same direction. And so that is how we started together. And um, we, the first national Congress was held in August in Manila. And the, I, first, the initial idea of the Christians for National Liberation was to make it like an umbrella organization of church workers, priests, nuns, um, church people who were, who had, who were in trade unions, uh, with the urban poor. And this would be because at that time, in the National Democratic Organization, they had this, the MPD, Movement for National, MDP or something, Movement for National Democracy. So this would be the Christian version of it. So that Movement was for National Democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, we had our Congress and we, uh, we elected the first leadership and Louis and I were elected in the first National Council. Wow. And we even had a demonstration. And at that time, there was the threat of martial law. This was August 1972. We did not realize that one month later, Marcos would declare martial law. So wow. these were the early beginnings of the Christians for National Liberation. Now, when martial law was declared, um, of course, the first um, thought of everyone was, you know, to, to, for the safety of the organizations. So a lot of people went underground, a lot of people joined the New People's Army, and it was just organizing and working, not thinking, were you Makibaka, were you KM? Were, it was, you know, uh, save 
uh, save the people from this dictatorship or fight against the dictatorship. Now, us, and um, some, sometime during the 80s, I think, the Christians for National Liberation began to meet again and say, let's revive the organization. And uh, it's very much revived today. They've just finished their ninth Congress and um, they are, let me just say several hundreds. I will not give wow. the exact number. Yes, wow. They, and they are all over the Philippines. They are very active. And even outside the Philippines, there are members of the CNL. Mm. So I guess that's, that's the history of it. Yeah, that's incredible. And we, we, we recently did a few episodes, two episodes on the new book that Jay just released on the compendium um, for the yeah. Catholic Social Doctrine of the Church. Yeah, which is a phenomenal book. I really encourage yeah, everyone. Yeah. yeah, I really encourage everyone listening in to purchase that book. Um, I, I'll also link that in the show notes because it not only talks about, you know, the, the Christians for National Liberation and what their thoughts are on the Catholic Social Doctrine of the Church, but you get you you really do learn a lot about U.S. imperialism and U.S. terrorism as well. So any any folks listening in who perhaps are not in the Philippines, uh, it, it's an excellent book um, that is produced, again, by revolutionary Christians who are fighting against the uh, injustices, both within a particular nation, but they have global impact as well. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Connie. So another organization that I'd like to learn a little bit more about, I think you pronounce it as the Makabaka. Uh, I think Makabaka. And is that the free movement of new women? Is that correct? It's the national movement of new women, of free women. Perfect. Could you, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, their work? Yeah, it's also, it is also a very interesting beginnings. And um, in the 1970s, when the Russian democratic movement was just beginning and people were in different mass organizations, like you had the Kabataan Makabayan, the youth, you had different uh, youth organizations that uh, drew, drew in men and women uh, and they were fighting for national democracy. And... Um, at, at, at a certain point, because, you know, as you get politically active, you also begin to develop ideas. You begin to yeah, move forward in your thinking. So the women began to feel that maybe they should have their own organization, that that it should not only be like uh, all, all the women would be, or all the, that you're just part of one organization like the Kabataang Makabayan or whatever organization, but that the women should form their organ own organization to um, to develop themselves to also to be able to uh, politicalize other women for the revolution. And in the beginning, it was the men who did not want this because they said it's dividing the forces. You know, like that. What does it mean that so the KM will become less because the women would leave KM and become in this women's organization. Mm. And so there was a whole lot of struggle, but the women continued uh, with their um, struggle to have to form their own, own organization. And so they called it, when they did form it, they called it Makibaka. And 
their initial action was to uh, picket the Miss Universe, Miss Philippines, the coronation of Miss Philippines, a beauty contest. Yeah, Miss Philippines, and, yeah. Yeah, because they said it's using the woman's body, you know, it is commodifying the woman's body. And suddenly the, the media, of course, they, they thought this was something. And also a, a former beauty queen, Gemma Cruz Araneta, was also there in the picket with them. Wow. And this brought national attention to this small group that was just beginning. Mm. And then the men realized that, yes, the women have a specific uh, contribution or they can think of certain ways that men don't think of. Absolutely. Another thing also at that time, in those days, it's unthinkable today, but the men thought, for example, men made all the placards, men did all the heavy work because they felt that women did not know how to do this. It's unimaginable today. Mm. But when Makibaka started and they started their pickets, they made their own posters. They they made their own and, and um, they did all the hard work. And they said, "Look, we are also capable of doing this." And so in that way, they also raised the political consciousness of the men. Yes. Uh, and um, also, then they, they became very active. They spread in different places. Um, in in the Philippines, I myself was not a Makibaka member, but I did meet Makibaka members, and they were always so proud that they were members of Makibaka. And um, it went with martial law as what happened. Everybody, you know, there was there were no more organizations or not acting as organizations. It was all the national democrats saving and saving the peoples. Um, fighting the dictatorship. And then it's been later in the 1980s when Makibaka uh, resumed again as an organization. Mm. It has its own publication, which is uh, Malaya, ng, uh, Malaya is the name. And most of the members are in the countrysides, in the guerrilla fronts and in the, in the countrysides. Mm-hmm. Although you also have a lot of members in the cities and even outside the Philippines. Okay, so so Makabaka as a patriotic patriotic women's organization, it really said, listen, we have a large you know portion of our membership are women, and we think that you know a lot of our work could target this particular sector, you know, the women's sector, far better than we had done in the past. And so Makabaka develops their own women's organization, and they have this first action, and it gets immediately because. The women have come together to focus on a particular, you know, women's event and issue. It gets national uh, attention, and and I think that is um, def- absolutely a great lesson for you know all comrades anywhere to understand that yeah, there's a difference between splitting, you know, a movement, splitting it, an organization. No, it, no. it no. split. It worked together, and it has worked together, for, and it's a member of the National Democratic Front. Exactly, it's one of allied organizations. Yeah. And a lot of organizations, you know, we could do a lot better work. Uh, of course, we, we stay unified, but we can do better work when we when we target particular sectors, um, because particular uh, say, you know, because women know women's issues and women's experiences better than, you know, anybody else or, or here in the U.S., you know, the workers sector needs to target the workers or 
um, a nationally, racially uh, uh, oppressed community. You know, they know their issues the best. As you said earlier on, one of the things that you were talking about with the Christians for National Liberation, but obviously, you know, this is you know, this this can be extended to all any organizations within the NDFB, is that you first you have to go integrate yourself with the people that you want to link up with, right? You you have to go to uh, to the people and then learn from them. Rather than going to the people to tell them, you know, what they should think, going to the people to yeah. tell them, you know, how to think and what to do, we the correct ideas, the uh, the correct programs, even as you were talking about making posters, the correct slogans will only be produced if we genuinely first integrated ourselves with the people that we are trying to organize and arouse and mobilize. So that, yeah, I think that's a an incredible example of um, kind of combating that commandist. Uh, kind of in you know going to people and telling them what to think or do or you know uh, and imposing a program upon them we have to go to the people because um, that's that's the only way that we can actually develop correct programs and, and, and organizations that are really effective for organizing people both within the Philippines and within the United States that's excellent um did you want to add on any comments also on the just peace work that's happening uh, with the NDFB I think the important thing on, you know, like the NDF has its own objectives for going into peace talks. I think the GRP or the government of the Republic of the Philippines has their own objectives. I think their objectives is really to let the NPA lay down their arms. In, in so many words, they keep telling us that. Although the first, as Louis said, the first agreement is the, in the Hague Joint Declaration. There is no surrender, no capitulation. But they keep, you know, for them, peace is the lack of uh, fighting. And with that, they mean actually that the NPA stops fighting because for them, they'll continue. Whenever there are ceasefires, it's for them, NPA, you stop fighting. We can continue under the pretext of protecting the people. For us, a just peace is justice where, where people, where, you, where the aspirations of the people are fulfilled. The Filipino people, the landless want their land. Progress in the Philippines, which we think you can bring about by national industrialization. Justice for the indigenous people. These are things that we are fighting for. These are, and then for, definitely US imperialism out. All forms of imperialism out, foreign bases out. You know, we have we are, are very capable of leading the country and improving the lives of everyone and fighting imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism, which we consider the main problems of Philippine society. So for us, when we can do that, that is a just peace. We will continue fighting for it in all the possible ways that we can. Absolutely, and just to you know, just from to mention to to people listening, and the NPA is the New People's Army, and that is uh, it's the People's Army that's um, that works you know works for peace basically in the Philippines, and I think it's also really important to say the the NPA is is named by the imperialist powers like the U.S. as a, a terrorist organization. But they're literally fighting the principal terrorist in the world, which is the United States. They're combating, as you said, uh, the, the bureaucrat capitalism 
that keeps the masses of Filipinos ex, uh, economically and politically uh, repressed. And so I just wanted to make that clear that the NPA is a new people's army and it is a it's a revolutionary army in the Philippines that has been growing and uh, it, it works to defend the people uh, against the onslaught of violence. May I add something to that? There was a priest who went to the countryside and he met the new people's army there. And they and he this is what struck him most. He said what the new people's army told him, they said. The rich have their army, which is the armed forces of the Philippines. We have our army, yes. the new people's army, because they protect the, the people. Mm. And yes. I thought that's a very good description of what the new people's army is. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. All right, Evie. So, you know, there's a lot of ac acronyms, a lot of organizational names. I want to make sure people... So we're going to talk about the FFPS, which is the Friends of the Filipino People in Struggle. And then there's the NDFP, which is the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. So, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about that solidarity work between the two organizations? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me tell a bit first about Friends. Um, so, yeah, FFPS or Friends, as I call it, um, it's an um, international organization. It's global um, and it's composed of different member organizations. And those member organizations are mostly non-Filipinos. So it's really non-Filipinos that have um, yeah, come together as a solidarity movement to support this very, uh, struggle in the Philippines. And so we are united in the belief that the Filipino people, they actually have the right to fight for their national liberation. And also they have to, the right to fight for their democratic rights, so for like a social liberation. And um, so one of the important points of, of our um, unities is that we see the NDF as the organization um, that is truly representing this um, aspiration of the Filipino people and also as, as, as such as um, because it's currently it is um, I don't know if you mentioned it before but it's um, it has the right to represent the new uh, democratic government that's being built in the countryside and as such actually we see it as, as the rightful government of the, of the Filipino people um, because it is the one that is actually protecting the people and so and fighting to serve their aspirations. Evie, if I can jump in mm -hmm. for a second. So yeah. the New People's Army is primarily, you know, in the countryside and they're defending the people in the countryside, but they're also helping establish a new uh, people's government that is operating um, in as a counter government to the the bureaucratic capitalist government that's backed by the uh, U.S. imperialists, correct? Exactly, yeah. It's actually, actually, it's a very interesting point about the NPA that um, another major difference between the AFP and the NPA is that the AFP is really purely, it's a military force by the rich. But the NPA, it's not only a military force, it's also a productive force, it's also an organizing force. Mm. Uh, most of the time will actually be spent not uh, fighting, but will be spent with um, doing mass work with the people. And, and part of which is also um, starting up that work for the new democratic government that's being built. Um, and of course, it's uh, under the leadership of the um, Communist Party in the Philippines. So that also continues to work for building that that coalition government in the liberated areas mm. because they are there as well. That's very I sometimes have to remind myself that there is actually liberated areas in the Philippines already where that wow. um, building a new government is really far, far along. Um, it's incredible. So, yeah, I think that's actually also a very interesting part of France that it um, 
it wants to take up the task of also um, popularizing the or um, propagating the movement in the Philippines more. Um, because uh, I think a lot of times when we meet people in the street, they might not, uh, they might have heard about some of the human rights violations that are going on in the Philippines, but not as much about the people that are actually uh, taking their destiny into their own hands and that are organizing themselves for for a revolution and for liberation from the from oppression. And um, yeah, it's very inspirational to see such a strong fight. And I think it's very important that we also continue to to propagate that um, and to show this alternative to to imperialism. Yeah, and it, something that you said made me think about how Kamala Harris literally just got off a uh, ship in the Philippines, a U.S. ship yeah. in the Philippines, saying, uh, I mean, basically saying to Marcos Jr. and, and Marcos Jr. For, you know, fully accepts that we're gonna, we want to f uh, further militarize the Philippines in our inter-imperialist conflict with China, and so. Um, that's the kind of media that that people get, right? That you know, Kamala Harris will go over there, and we're gonna stand up for the Filipino people by fighting China. Uh, and that's that's the, the those are the lies. That's the ideology that we're just being dumped with. But exactly what you said, learning about the uh, the people actually fighting against U.S. imperialism in the Philippines, and then genuinely setting up new people's you know liberated areas, both from bureaucrat capitalism and U.S. imperialism and feudalism this is that's the that's the work we should be supporting not when a u.s imperialist a supporter of u.s terrorism goes over and says hey we want to further militarize your country for our own imperialist interests just wanted to bring that up yeah no that's a great uh, great addition because i think in general the people in the u.s have a lot more in common with the people in the philippines in the end of it and i think i mean we're talking a lot about um the church organizing as well. And I think especially when you look at church organizing and church values, when it comes down to it, it, it aligns a lot more with the support of the people and their true, their genuine aspirations for freedom. Yes. So I think that, yeah, that's very, it's very important to, to talk about. Um, yeah, excellent. Uh, Evie, could you also tell us a little bit about a present campaign happening right now uh, to defend Kyle Louis? Yeah, so um, yeah, we heard from Kailui earlier on. Um, he's a very dedicated revolutionary who's been fighting um, for, for change in the Philippines and for just and lasting peace for most of his life. Um, and actually, as, um, as of, I think, this year, um, the NDF has been uh, designated as terrorist in the Philippines, as a terrorist organization. Um, it is actually not on a terrorist list. It's just designated by and created anti-terrorist council. Um, and also, Kalui since shortly has been um, named as a terrorist by that, that terror council. Um, it is interesting also that it's most, um, the connections with the U.S. are very there, very much there. So it's um, almost as, as um, yeah, really as a puppet um, regime of the U.S. acting to to designate Kalui and the NDF as terrorists. Um, so, so we as friends and, and other solidarity forces, we have come together to um, to fight this unjust um, terrorist designation and to call for the people to, to uh, let their voices be heard that Kalui is not a terrorist, he is a man of peace um, because he's been fighting for just and lasting peace. And it's actually the uh, government of uh, first of Duterte, but now of Marcos, that is the terrorist um, um, as a puppet of U.S. imperialism. And so we also have um, 
we have um, um, a petition going on, which we have both online, but also, um, yeah, with the, on the ground. Um, we are gathering signatures, and then on December 9, we are planning to um, um, present these signatures to the different embassies, the different Filipino embassies in the countries that we are active. Yeah, that's excellent. And I mean, for anyone you know, vaguely familiar with the history of the U.S., the people who are fighting against uh, the violence uh, ha, you know, were always named terrorists, right? The communists who organized the workers against the monopoly capitalism here in the U.S. historically have been named terrorists. The women and the LGBTQ plus people uh, struggling against patriarchy, the leaders named terrorists. The black, indigenous, Latin and migrants uh, persons fighting against the U.S. national and racial oppression, terrorists. And so um, I think it's really important to continue, especially since the so-called, you know, war on terror, really understanding what that was actually about. Uh, it was not about defending people, not not about the people's well-being in any part of the world, not, any, not uh, certainly not in the West and West Asia or, you know, Eastern Europe. So it's really, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to throw that in there that this, the term terrorism has been taken and used by the imperialists. And so it's used abroad on an international level, but it's also used internally within the Philippines, within the United, United States. And we need to constantly be highlighting who the real uh, drivers of, of terror are, right? We have, we have millions of people in the United States locked in cages, that we strip them from their communities, rip them from their families, mentally, emotionally, relationally, they may never be the same. You know, that that's the kind of terror that occurs within the U.S. People are afraid to organize unions, right? You know, we're afraid to, to, to lose our jobs because of terror, because we're afraid of being forced to starvation. You know, we're, we're afraid to organize against patriarchy because of, of what male chauvinism might do. And so these are the forms of terror that we need to be highlighting and and absolutely, no, uh, call, Louis, as, as we spoke to earlier, is no terrorist, literally, literally a freedom fighter. And that's what freedom fighters will always be labeled by, by the, uh, the ruling classes and the, and the oppressors. Right. Yeah, fully agree. And uh, maybe just to add, so, so this campaign to uh, defend Louis, it's, um, it's one of the campaigns that we have as an organization. And so, um, um, but also Friends is organized into different member organizations who always have their local campaigns uh, next to global campaigns and do their own local sort of organizing. And it can be very different groups. So it can be a very consolidated organization, but it could even be a loose group of friends who are artists and are wanting to um, contribute to supporting the Filipino people's struggle or the ND and or the NDF. Um, and so, yeah, it's ranging from like moral or political to material support how best could an organization join the Friends? So we, um, we have a, a website, which is ffps.info. And um, that would be one way to, um, to contact us. There's like, um, I don't know how you call it. There's like a, a join up sheet kind of thing um, where you can fill in your information and then it will be sent to us and we can contact you on that. Wonderful. But we also have uh, several social media platforms so you can always message us and get in contact. And even if you're just one person, we can try to find out if there's uh, something in your area that can be, be done as well. Excellent. Great. I will definitely link all that in the show notes. 
Well, this has been a really um, encouraging and wonderful conversation. And and I want to go ahead and, and move towards the, the particular chapter in Portland of the Friends is, you know, the acronym uh, is called POPS. So the People Organizing for Philippine Solidarity. So it's the Portland chapter of the Friends of the Filipino People in, uh, in Struggle. And I didn't know if um, if we wanted to discuss a little bit about the, the particular work of POPS as a friend of the friend or as a member of the friends here in the United States. Yeah, I'm Dana. I'm a member of POPS and the education officer. Um, so we formed around November, December 2021. Um, upon hearing about the formation of friends um, and deciding to take it up here in the U.S. and really help build it out. Um, and actually the acronym POPS is a tribute to Father POPS. Uh, that's his nickname. Real name is Fausto Tintorio. Um, he was a Catholic priest who was sent to the countryside in Mindanao and ended up really integrating with the masses there, especially the peasants, um, the Lumad, which are the indigenous peoples of Mindanao, and became an advocate for their rights and a friend of the revolutionary movement. So he was eventually assassinated, um, likely because of that work um, and likely by government forces, though, you know, we don't know for sure, but we can assume. Um, so, yeah, really a tribute to Father Pops, um, naming our organization Pops. Oh, sorry, let me turn off my heater really quick. No, it's cool. Don't want the sound to interfere. Um, so yeah, we're based in Portland. Um, and really, we take up the campaigns of friends and particularize them to our local context. Um, so the primary thrust is promoting the National Democratic Front of the Philippines and its 12-point program, which... Um, it lays out the tasks of the National Democratic Revolution and lays the foundations for the Socialist Revolution. Um, and doing educational discussions around that and really getting out the message that the Filipino people have a right to struggle for liberation by any means necessary. And as has already been said, that the NDFP really represents the will of the Filipino people and acts upon the will of the Filipino people and the toiling masses for genuine freedom. So some of the campaigns, of course, there's the campaign to defend Ka Lui, which is why we're here today, uh, which I can talk a little bit more about later. Um, but on top of that, we also have a campaign to delist the Communist Party of the Philippines, the New People's Army, and Jose Maria Sison from the U.S. terrorist listing. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've already named like the U.S imperialism is the number one terrorist of the world, right? And the CPP, Communist Party of the Philippines, NPA, Jose Maria Sison, like these are not terrorists. Uh, They are genuine people's organizations really upholding the Filipino people's aspiration for liberation. Mm. So we need to oppose this label of terrorist anywhere and everywhere we can. Another campaign we've taken up from FFPS is the Stop the Bombings campaign. So for those who don't know, the Philippine government 
under Duterte and it's now continuing under Marcos Jr. has been bombing the countryside of the Philippines, bombing its own people, um, as well as like aerial strafing, just indiscriminately destroying the Philippine countryside and actually more members of the armed forces of the Philippines and the Philippine National Police have been killed than members of the New People's Army. Mm. That's how discriminate they are in wow. their bombing. In addition to civilians, of course, um, have also been killed and many people displaced or had their crops destroyed. So we're really trying to spread information on that. Of course, where is a lot of that technology coming from? It's coming from the U.S., the helicopters, the bombs, the guns, the drones that are used to surveil the countryside. So, yeah, getting the message out about that. Um, locally for us, one aspect of that campaign looks like supporting work around the Philippine Human Rights Act, which is a piece of legislation that would suspend military aid to the Philippines pending investigation of human rights abuses by the Duterte government. We also have some local targets that we're looking into. We haven't solidified our campaign plans yet, but of course there are quite a few weapons manufacturers in the U.S. that are culpable. So we're making plans for that currently. But another big task is building the FFPS within the U.S., because currently we're the only currently active FFPS organization in the U.S. So we've been building out relationships with different organizations in our area that don't already have a connection to the National Democratic Movement in order to really identify who might be interested in joining FFPS. And just for anyone listening, your organization, if you're already in an organization, doesn't have to be just about the Philippines or just about solidarity to be a member of Friends of the Filipino People in Struggle. You really just have to be anti-imperialist and united in the belief that the Filipino people have the right to struggle for liberation by any means necessary. So you can take up a campaign of FFPS that makes sense for your organization's work while still continuing other work you're doing. So I think that's just important to note. Uh, if I could jump in just for a second, I think that's really helpful because we need to connect our struggles, right? So I have a coworker came to me the other day and she said she's sick and tired of her uh, child facing racial dis you know, discrimination and harassment from other, from white students. Her child is black from white students and from the white teachers here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so perhaps you're in an organization that's combating you know, the racial prejudice um, that's embedded within our education system, um, that's tolerated, and even you know supported by some teachers. Well, you know that is inseparable from what's happening with U.S. imperialism, but also particularly within the many islands of the Philippines. Uh, or perhaps you're in a church, and the people in your church have economic and political issues that we need to be, you know, organizing around. And and as Christians, we should certainly be in solidarity, not just as like Christians, right? Some people put religious 
solidarity or religious ideology, uh, religious unity above political unity. But for me, and I actually just put a, an episode out um, on Christ the King Sunday, and at the end I wanted to talk about how, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, theological unity above political unity. We should put the people's needs first. So I don't care if you call yourself Christian, um, if you're hurting the people, if you're supporting capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism. We should be united for the actual needs of the people. So yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and say that your organization doesn't have to be about the, the Philippine struggle, but but perhaps it could be really, really helpful to connect your work that you're doing in your community or your organization to the struggle that's happening in the Philippines. Do I hear that correctly, Dana? Yeah, absolutely. And just to add a little more about the campaign to defend Ka Lui in the U.S., uh, we've been primarily focused on gathering signatures for the petition that Evie mentioned earlier. We've been flyering and signature gathering at events, creating online content about who Louis is. We also have a film screening coming up of Revolution Selfie, which is a film that was made all with a selfie stick, uh, sort of within the Philippine Revolution, the filmmaker actually got to integrate with a unit of the New People's Army and Louis is featured in that film. So we're going to use that as a way to talk about Louis and the campaign. We are also pointing a study of a recent report that came out on the war crimes committed by the armed forces of the Philippines within the past, well, since 2016. Um, and really contextualizing that within some of the agreements that Louis mentioned, like the Comprehensive Agreement on Respect for Human Rights and International Humanitarian Law, which the AFP has just been consistently violating. And all of that is building up to, uh, I think Evie said December 9th, there's like, of course, the time shift. So for us, it's going to be December 10th, because Evie's based in the Netherlands. But um, December 10th is International Human Rights Day for declared by the UN and we're planning an event with some other organizations here in Portland to really use that day to highlight the campaign to defend Kalui and yeah as was mentioned all over the world on that day people will be delivering the signatures on the petition to um, embassies Philippine embassies and consulates around the world so uh, I see that Evie has their hand raised. Yeah, Evie. Yeah, no, it's a very good point that you're mentioning. It's actually um, a recent development that we haven't yet, um, so it's maybe not the easiest that I mentioned now, but we haven't talked to our members yet about it as well because we found out that December 10 is actually on a Saturday, so most of the embassies will be closed. Um, and we hadn't really considered that at first, but of course we, we would want to hand it in person. So we were actually thinking of uh, changing it to December 9 so that we can still catch them. The, um, the workers that would be there. But that's, uh, I go, uh, yeah. Thank you for mentioning Excellent. that. Anna. Excellent. Well, I just want to say um, this has been an incredible honor to be able to, uh, to speak with you all. And I am so thankful for the work and the practice and the struggle that you all are committed to week in and week out. Um, uh, Louie, Connie, Evie, and Dana. And whether it's happening in the Philippines or in Portland or in the Netherlands or here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our struggles are 
are inseparable. Whether we're fighting for better wages, better working conditions, um, better benefits, whether we're fighting police brutality or um, the transformation of our education system, our healthcare system, whether we are um, fighting bureaucrat capitalism in the Philippines, whether we're fighting patriarchy in the US or in, uh, in any country across the world, these struggles are inseparable and you all have, have done a lot of work laying the ground for those like myself who are new to this struggle and uh, new to this practice, new to the necessity of joining and building organization and arousing and organizing and mobilizing the masses for our people's demands, right? These are not demands, as uh, Connie, you had mentioned several times earlier, these, these are the demands of the people. The NDFP represents the people because it is the people. You know, these are not demands coming from some other organization. It's not the Communist Party putting this in the mouth of the people. Uh, or Louis, earlier on, you were talking about how you were uh, there was like a, uh, a suggestion that you were inciting something amongst the sugar workers. No, these are the demands of the sugar workers, right? Land back. These are the demands of the Filipino people. National liberation, the end of U.S. imperialism, the end of U.S. terrorism. I could go on, but I, I'm just really appreciative uh, of this conversation uh, that we were able to have. I want to open up the floor and uh, give you all the last, uh, the the closing remarks. If if there's anything that you all would like to uh, close us up with. Thank you very much, Jay. Also, Dana, we are by the way inspired by your solidarity in the spirit of Pops, who was a tremendous inspiration to the people in the Philippines and abroad. We thank you and we wish you and we wish all of us further success and further victories. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you also. And you really also inspire us that you take our struggle and make it also your own. That's very important for us and I want you all to realize how important that is for us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chase, for inviting us all here today. And it's a really great opportunity to talk about the Philippines and the solidarity work. And thank you, Dana and Pops, as well, for sharing on your work in the U.S. And uh, I hope a lot of extra uh, people will be interested in joining and contacting Pops or, or directly. And uh, yeah, let's let's combat U.S. imperialism in the Philippines and in the U.S. Yeah, if we want to if we want to wrap it up with uh, Dana, how can we connect with Pops? Okay, I just wanted to say uh, for anyone listening who is not Filipino, uh, maybe you're not in an organization currently, or maybe you are in an organization that's focused on U.S. work. Uh, and if you're wondering what is the rationale for joining a Philippine Solidarity Org or expanding the scope of your organization's work to include an aspect of solidarity with the Philippine Revolution, I just want to try to make a case for that. So for me, I feel that while working towards the redistribution of wealth and access to resources in the U.S. is incredibly important and necessary, that alone will not change the fact that that wealth and those resources are stolen from nations of the global south that are subject to U.S. imperialism. Like we can organize to win really robust social welfare programs for the U.S. working class, and we deserve that. But it would still be subsidized by the blood and sweat 
the lives of people in the semi-colonies, of Filipino workers and peasants. So to me, as people living in the belly of the beast, it really is our duty as internationalists to support the liberation struggles of the countries that the U.S. is occupying, extracting from, and exploiting. And ultimately, the victory of the Filipino people will strengthen the fight of the working class in the U.S. and all over the world. Um, and I also think it's important to consider that there are four million Filipinos living in the U.S., working some of the most vulnerable and least compensated jobs and yearning to return home to see their homeland prosper. I've heard people say before in response to me being in pops, like, oh, that's so niche. And I'm like, how is this niche? There are probably Filipinos taking care of your grandma in the nursing home or bringing you food if you're in the hospital for a procedure. They're making your clothes in a local factory. They're cleaning your hotel room. They're spending months at sea bringing us goods from overseas. And they're fighting the longest running people's war today, which we and friends of the Filipino people in struggle know that the victory of the Filipino people will contribute to the worldwide weakening of U.S. imperialism. The Filipino people in struggle are on the leading edge of the development of the science of revolution, that is Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, so why would you not put your time in to support their revolution and learn from it? Like, on the one hand, it's our duty to show our solidarity, and we have so much to gain from working more closely with this movement and absorbing the immense wealth of practical and theoretical knowledge gained from decades of lessons learned. So I just really want to encourage people to get in touch with FFPS, with POPs, Get in touch with your local national democratic mass organizations like Anakbayan, Gabriela, Migrante, because Ka Louis needs our support. We have to defend our comrade and the Filipino people need your support. We need to defend their revolution. And speaking from my own experience, like you will not be the same. Your organization will not be the same after witnessing the incredible revolutionary work this movement is accomplishing. So become friends of the Filipino people in struggle. And then just in terms of how you can link up with us, we have a link tree, which I'll make sure gets in the show notes. It's um, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Pops PDX. We have zines about the 12 point program and the Stop the Bombings campaign that you can order. We also have a link to the petition you can sign for the delisting of Kaluwi. So please sign that um, to remove his de designation as a terrorist. And then we also have links on there to our Instagram and our email. So if you're part of an organization in the US interested in learning more about the Philippine Revolution or joining FFPS, you can reach, to a, reach out to us on Instagram or email us from our link tree and we'd love to talk to you about it. Absolutely. Dana, thank you so much for, for that wrapping up. And yeah, I, I want to also, you know, reiterate the necessity of applying Marxism, Leninism, Maoism here within our particular context. And the best way that we can support the people struggling for liberation and freedom in the Philippines is struggling for liberation and freedom here in the U.S. and linking our struggle with theirs. So um, we need to connect our workers' struggles and our community struggles and the youth and student and the women's sector. Our struggles are inseparable. And so, yeah, anybody listening in, the best way that we can support 
the, the global struggles to end capitalism, to end imperialism, to end colonialism, to end patriarchy, uh, is waging our struggles here and linking those in unity. So thank you so much for everyone, uh, your contributions here, and I'm always learning, so I, uh, I'm really grateful for this time spent together.